Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us for the first time, what we are doing is counting down our top 15 episodes of Game of Thrones. We're going in chronological order until our last episode, which will just be out of order, but our favorite episode of Game of Thrones, the best episode of Game of Thrones. But as of right now, we are still in the midst of season three. We are talking about season three, episode seven, Bear and the Maiden Fair, which aired on May 12, 2013, is written by George R. R. Martin. Ever heard of him? And directed by Michelle McLaren, the only woman to ever direct episodes of Game of Thrones. So there we go. Here's my 15-word recap for Bear in the Main Fair. It's not going to be my best. It goes like this. The Hound grabs Arya. Sansa and Marjorie have the talk. Theon loses his favorite toy. So that leaves out the titular... Uh, aspect of this episode, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, but we will get there. No worries. Um, we're going to start, we're going to uh, reward a few things. We're going to, I'm going to start that again. We're going to give out a few awards before we get to talking about why we think this is an, uh, an important or favorite episode of Game of Thrones. And, uh, we are going to start with our obvious MVP of the episode. I'm going to go with Bart the Bear, um, who is, you know, a key, part of this episode. Uh, he is a very famous Hollywood bear, by the way. Uh, if you've never, uh, there's been a couple Barts. I guess there's like Big Bart, Little Bart and stuff like that. Anyway, this is Little Bart and, uh, he's been in a bunch of stuff and he deigned to swipe at Brienne of Tarth and Jamie Lannister for this episode of Game of Thrones. It's a great, great sequence. Um, you know, later, later, if this were done in a later season, it would probably be mostly CGI, but this is, you know, achieve through some practical effects, which is really fun. All right. What do you think? Well, um, you know, Bart the Bear, uh, Little Bart is actually tech- his, he is referred to as Little Bart, but his actual real name on Wikipedia is Bart the Bear 2. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> which is just like, 
kind of not dehumanizing, but de ursonizing. Oh. Uh, um, uh, I, I have to agree. I think, you know, I'm looking at our notes. I agree with us on both obvious MVP and sneaky MVP. Wow. So we are in absolute concert on this one. All right. Um, then do you want to take sneaky MVP? Yeah. Our sneaky MVP is the great weirdo Kyburn, uh, who <laughs> Kyburn, who is his medical knowledge is useful, uh, when dealing with Jamie's, um, you know, bloody stump where his hand used to be. Uh, and yet, as we know, is, is up to <laughs> grimmer things. Uh, but he just seems to really enjoy his work and you, you kind of have to respect that. Yeah. Um, we first met him in the last episode that we talked about, which is, I think, or, um, actually, no, I think he's introduced a little earlier, sort of, um, injured outside of Heron Hall. But anyway, they played the long game with Kyburn. Like, I think a lot of people, when we first met him, did not think that this creepy little weirdo would be so important. Uh, like, Cersei's right hand man, um, inventor of a giant crossbow that could take down dragons, maker of zombies, et cetera, et cetera. But that's our, that's our man, Kyburn. Here he goes. Um, Anton Lesser is the actor who plays him, and I love, um, Anton Lesser's work elsewhere. He's great in The Hour and a bunch of other things, but he just really brings that subtle creep factor, uh, to Kyburn that I. Yeah. And one point, Jamie is like, he asked why he does, he got, got his like maester chains taken away or whatever. And he's yeah. like, fondled too many little boys or something. And, uh, Kyburn's like, no, that's not my particular vice. And <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> wow, it's something even more sinister than that. It's dead people. It's fine. This is fine. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about it's it. Fine. It'll be important later, but it's fine now. Don't worry. Um, all right. This is the part of the episode where I force Richard to do an impression of someone. Um, we're going to read out a quote from the episode, try to do an impression of an actor. We'll do our best. Uh, here I go. Um, <clears throat> uh, you pay people, you pay, <laughs> you pay me to kill people who bother you. Evil notions come free. It's a terrible accent. That's my broad impression. Wow. Maybe my worst. Woof. Uh, maybe my worst, but, uh, you pay, pe- you pay me to kill people who bother you. Evil notions come free. Is a pretty classic bronze saying. Uh, what do you say, Richard? Okay. Let's see. We could arrange to have you carried. Tywin Lannister saying to, to, uh, <laughs> Joffrey. Joffrey, right? Yes. That little shit. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. He's like, I can't go all the way up those stairs. Yeah. So, um, like, <laughs> climb all those steps. Too far. Oh my God. Uh, there's another Such great line. Such a like for that. millennial wanting to work from home. <laughs> it was millennial. There's a, there's another great line from that scene where I think Charles Dance's Tywin Lannister says, what, you are being counseled now or something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ugh, so good. He all hates right. all of his, everyone in his family. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Um, all right. Next, we have our best dressed award. And, uh, I have never given out an easier best dress award in my life. This goes to Brianna Tars iconic blood smeared pink dress. Yeah. You can't um, really beat that. You can't. You just can't. Um, it's a, it's, it looks terrible on her clean and it looks great on her dirty and bloody. And uh, it's a fantastic dress. And shout out to the makeup work on this episode, um, which is typically good. But like the bear scratches on her, because like, I love that we don't, we don't see that we we come into that in Medias race, you know? Yeah. Like she's already been in the pit. She's already been duking it out for a little bit. She's already been injured. Um, and that that those 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 claw marks, um, right? You know, kind of on her clavicle are like just really well articulated. I love it. Um, all right. So from 
scratched up clavicles to our ship of the episode. Two characters were shipping together. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, one that the fandom latched on to early and often, which is Marjorie Terrell and Sansa Stark uh, in this episode. Uh, this episode shows them having kind of the talk. I mean, Sansa already knows what sex is, but like Marjorie is there to tell her like, it can be fun and it'll be fine. And Tyrion seems fun. It's going to be fine. Like I, I love this scene between them in the garden and uh, you know, Marjorie's always been a girl who's like pretty cool and loose with like sexuality. Like she was fine with her gay husband being into her brother and all of that sort of stuff. And so, you know, she says something like, you know, women love short men and women love whatever and women love other women. And it's fine. Sansa, it's fine. Uh, so great scene. Ship them forever. Uh, RIP Marjorie. There you go. I gotta say, I know that it's like towards bad ends, but my ship is, is Melisandre and Gendry. Because, <laughs> like, they, like, Gendry's like, it's like rugged, you know, blacksmith hot, and she's obviously like sneaky, witchy, beautiful. Um, and it's just like a fun, like, he's grimy, she's, you know, very pristine. Like, I don't know, it's just like a fun, um, dynamic, and it's just like a, a fun thing on this show sometimes when, like, two peripheral-ish actors, I mean, obviously Melisandre is a bigger character than Gendry, like, get to just have scenes together. Um, yeah. They're not, like, main characters. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I know that bad things await poor Gendry, but, um, well, not necessarily. I mean, I think he's coming back, but, like, you know, he, he's, he's made a bad decision, and yet I, I don't, I want to see him with his bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can say that we are recording this well in advance. So we were recording this on the day that the season eight trailer dropped, and we did get to see Gendry. Uh, I gift it. <laughs> <laughs> I also gift it. Uh, Smithin, he's Smithin at Winterfell. So Gendry's still going, still Smithin. Um, so there we go. So those are our ships. Before we hop over to sort of our broader episode uh, discussion, we did want to mention that if you're listening to this episode and you're not yet a subscriber of Vanity Fair. We have a little offer running. Uh, you might have heard us talk about this already a couple times on, on the podcast. But if you go to VanityFair.com slash Thrones right now and you type in the offer code Thrones, you get 50% off an entire year subscription to Vanity Fair. That's digital and the print magazine. And you get a tote bag all for $7.50, which like that tote bag is huge and beautiful and worth $7.50 alone, let alone all the content that you can read that Richard and I produce on VanityFair.com. You will not have to mess with a paywall. The wall is coming down. Uh, we will also gonna, we're also going to include um, a vial of King's Blood. Oh, yeah, because it's powerful, as we know. <laughs> drawn from where is the question? Uh, well, <laughs> that's for me to know and our listeners to never not worry about. <laughs> that is the offer that we are doing right now, which is vanityfair.com slash thrones. Type in thrones. Huge discount. Good deal. Come join us on vf.com. Um, all right. So we are going to get into like why more broadly this is an important episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, one thing that we, you know, you alluded to. We learned who Gendry is, that he's King Robert's son. It's a big deal that's just sort of like slipped in there in this little boat scene between Melisandre and Gendry. Uh, so yeah, what did you, that's something, did you, well, we knew that, obviously everyone knew yeah. that, but like, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to watch him learn that, you know? Yeah. And it's also like in that way, like, it's just nice to have this tether back to season one, you know, like I like a, I like a story that doesn't forget its details. You know, you had to kind of remember that like 
Robert's many bastards were being murdered throughout the city and that like, didn't like John Aaron find out about that or, but he, you know, like, like there's just like all this kind of intrigue from season one that then kind of applies here. And I think that that's kind of the show rewarding, um, loyal, uh, uh viewership. Um, and, and again, I'd like, I, I think that when it's these two, two kind of not main characters talking and you just get a sense of the bigger world and the bigger mechanics of the story. And I don't know, it just feels exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and then, then that, turns out badly for um Gendry as, as you noted. Uh speaking of things, sexual things that turn out badly for people, we also this is where Theon loses um his penis. So mm-hmm. this is it. Yeah. And and you know, and I think that like <laughs> I think we can be positive and negative on the on this podcast. We are obviously both fans of the show, but cer- not certain things. Uh, this is the beginning of the the you know, stuff. just the, yeah. the, the long, tortury, just miserable, um, uh, Ramsey stuff where he's just like, okay, you know, like I just, yeah. for, I, I forgot that it was happening in the third season, you know? Yeah. It comes in early, comes in hot. And like we, we had mentioned this before that like there are villains that we love and miss. Like I really miss Joffrey. Uh, I miss Tywin, stuff like that. Ramsey, you know, I, I think it's just that Ramsey like comes in at 11 and stays at 11 and it's, it's, there's not as much nuance there as I, as I would want, I guess is what I would say. So. And you kind of don't really believe that someone, a bastard that's this wicked and this horrible would have survived this long. You know? Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's some terrible and wicked things. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and then. I also want, I want to talk about, we, you know, last time we talked about John and Egret in the cave. There's so much work done in season three to build up how important Egret is to John so that her ultimate death in the battle episode that doesn't happen till season four sort of sinks in with us, you know? And so like to compare, um, like, I, I like a lot of the scenes between Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington and I actually like, you know, John and Danny together, I think that's fine. But like, compare the amount of time the show had to convince us that those two characters cared about each other, you know, with all of the John and Egret stuff we get in season two and season three. Uh, it's just night and day, you know? And so we get this lovely scene in this episode where you know, she's, she's like, I'm a caveman unfamiliar with your, uh, southern ways. You know, she like, she doesn't know what a windmill is. And, you know, he's talking about her wearing a dress and all this stuff. And it's just a really charming, lovely interaction between two humans who were, you know, actually in love with each other in real life. So that always helps, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like appreciate this episode for like really setting up, um, the tragedy that's soon to come, you know, where Rob and, and Salisa, his, his wife yeah. have this lovely scene post coital. Oh, yeah. And he's kind of being like sweet, but also kind of like flirty. Like you better put the clothes on or I'm going to, you know, whatever. And then she reveals that she's pregnant and you're like, Oh man, like knowing what's coming, they really laid it on thick, <laughs> you know, like, I know. like the sort of, you know, coming tragedy. Uh, I mean, which is kind of mirrors John and your greet in that way. Um, you know, this show is, is, uh, does not allow people to be happy for very long. I think something that we should look out for in the final season is if the show takes time to really drill in on like why you like a character, 
I suspect that character is going to die shortly thereafter. It's something that Game of Thrones does over and over and over again. So yeah, we're real. They're really driving home that it's not just that like Rob f- like followed his like lust to Talisa, though that is certainly an aspect of it, and that's they don't shy away from that in this scene. But also like his joy at her pregnancy, like all that. It's very sweet too, and so you you will then feel their loss two episodes later that much more sharply. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's borderline manipulative, but it's, uh, it really works in the scene. And, and like, it didn't feel manipulative yet. You know, I think no, it was, we were still no. early in the show's run. It's still chugging along with the, the, the book source material. It's before that kind of crucial moment where they, they jumped off the cliff. Um, and you know, and, and, and flew, they, they, they haven't crashed, you know, but they, they, they just don't have the safety net anymore. Um, and, and so it, it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's dramatically, it grabs you and it does something kind of cruel to you, but it, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's cheap. And, um, you know, shout out to Una Chaplin, who I think did a really mm. good job, um, as Talisa. She's just like very, like, she's like very warm and very sensible, like smart and sensible. And, and, um, I just, I really like her. All right. Um, also we get these little, like, this is, this is when, Season two was really the section of Daenerys' storyline that people had the most trouble with. She was like, uh, you know, it's the whole where are my dragons sort of section. In season three, it's better, but it's still like, it still feels like an abrupt, uh, meanwhile <laughs> in Yunkai, you know, totally. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, which they sort of start to knit together a bit better later when you get like Tyrion over there and stuff like that. Then it feels less like, uh, so disjointed. Um, that being said, I really do like this scene where she meets with one of the Yunkish sort of, um, I think it's one of the masters of Yunkai or something like that. And, uh, you know, she's just like casually feeding meat to her <laughs> dragons and, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of like, they're like big scary parrots at this point, uh, in the story, but, uh, they're still so intimidating. And I just really like the way that Amelia Clark just casually tosses that meat around. It's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. And I think this is like kind of where you're, I mean, we've obviously seen her kill people before, but like the, this episode, you sort of start to see the creep of her megalomania. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think that what that is is the creep of her real Targaryen Targaryenness. Yeah, um, where she's like, it's not enough for her to to be strong or defiant. She kind of, she really likes to lord her power over people and be completely like, um, you know, un unrelenting, unmerciful. You know, her, you know, her saying, "Well, the gift I'm going to give you is not killing you." You know, she's yeah. kind of a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Um. Yeah. So, so that happens. And then, um, we get the hound snatching up Arya. Arya runs away from the Brotherhood and gets snatched up by the hound. And that's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, uh, that lasts all the way through season four. Um, and then, then we've just got Jamie and Brienne and like, it's the, like their departure. Uh, her sort of asking him to be better, asking him to keep his promise to protect the Stark girls, him stopping on the road and then him turning around and going back for her. Uh, I mean, like I've said many times before and will again, I'm a huge Jamie Lannister fan, but this is just like such an important, you know, hero moment. It's a small, it feels like a small hero moment, but an important hero moment. Um, 
What do you, what do you think of this? Well, I, yeah, I'm just always kind of curious, like, cause I haven't watched it, the, the whole show again, you know, just been watching these kind of selected episodes. How natural is his arc from the kind of person who would push a, a young child out of a window, potentially to his death? And this, you know what I mean? Like, like, cause I feel like what, what, what changes in his life is, is hardship, right? Like all of a sudden he is not winning. He's captured, then he's injured severely, you know, permanently maimed. Like, is that where sort of the humanity rises? And do you think that it's a steady enough arc that it's believable? I, I really do. Like, I, I hear what you're saying. We, we've sort of had you hop skipping around, um, a little bit. So, um, you miss like all the stuff on the road with Brienne. Um, you know, like all the stuff where he's captured by the Starks, him losing his hand, which was such a part of his identity, all of that. And then, and then I think that, you know, as we mentioned the last time we talked about it, that bathtub scene, um, where he's like, okay, but also I, I was a hero and everyone mistook me for a villain. I mean, yeah, he can't, he pushed a kid out of a window. So maybe it's not fair to ask you, Richard, to just hop through these few episodes and just be on the Jamie train. But like, I think, I think they took a long time with it. And and then what's great about it, um, as I think Brian Cogman mentioned when we talked to him last week, is like it's not like he has that moment in in the bathtub with Brian and then it's like and then he's fixed, you know? It's messy. It's messy for Jamie. Like he has an attachment to Brian. He has a pull to be his more honorable self, but uh he's not just a perfect hero from here on out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he does stuff like, you know, kill Lydia Lena, you know, like there's, there's stuff that he does where he's still like ensorcelled by Cersei and, and like figuring it all out. So there you go. But I, but I think, I think this show did, you know, have time, uh, here to, to really give him that time to have that arc. Absolutely. So that, that is our discussion of the bear in the main fair, uh, which I think is like kind of an unorthodox one to include on top 15 lists. I've seen a lot of these top lists and they've got, you, you, like you can hit the really big obvious ones and that's, and we will hit some of those. We'll hit plenty of those, but I think it's worth revisiting some of these smaller in between episodes to sort of see how it all knits together. Please stay tuned. We will be talking to the lovely Joe Dempsey uh, about his character Gendry and everything that he learns in this episode later on. Uh, and we will also be revealing which episode we will be talking about next. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show. Love to see it. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Hi, Joe. It's Joe. Joe Dempsey, Gandry Baratheon. Um, my first, my first question for you is when you were, when you were cast in this show, were you the type to pick up the books and scan through and see how long Gendry survived, uh, in the books? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I mean, and I guess like, initially my intentions were like fairly noble and pure, I think. And I just wanted to, you know, this was, even though it was season one and even though, nobody like none of us knew that it was going to be such a you know such a big deal um 
it was still a big, you know, it was still a big deal for me. And it was still, you know, an HBO production, which, you know, we, you know, I've, I've been well aware of, it's been like sort of like a high watermark for great television over, you know, 30 odd years now. And so I, I, Having having been cast as the, in, like, in the role, I, I sort of immediately thought it must have been some kind of mistake, and that you know uh, they would they would at some point come to their senses and realise that you know there was clearly someone better out there for the part. But I thought in the meantime, I've got to try and make sure that I'm as as you know read up as possible, and as kind of and, and as knowledgeable about the world that I'm about to step into and about the character I'm about to play. <clears throat> so I did I did start reading. Before we started shooting season one, I read the first book, and I've already started on the second. And then, um, and then after that point, after season two, anyway, um, I was aware that David and Dan started to go a little bit off piste, you know, particularly with with Gendry. You know, I think um, they, you know, there, there was so much, there was so little to go on actually in the books themselves that very, yeah, very quickly they started to add a few more sort of extra narrative strain for him and 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 so at that point on you know i kind of felt like it wasn't really doing me any favors in terms of character to carry on reading um because that was the main reason why i was doing it you know i I really enjoyed the books but also it was it was it was a work thing and um and so yeah and and also i kind of wanted to i didn't want to second guess david and dan I, i knew that they were starting to do their own thing a little bit when it came to gendry and you know, I didn't want to get any ideas from the books that maybe they decided to discard. Then perhaps it wasn't so, wait, what's happening? Why am I with Melisandre now sort of thing? Or, you know, did you have any thoughts about when they pushed your character into that storyline, into that direction? <laughs> when those scripts started to come out for season three, I'm pretty sure it was, um, they kind of, they, they go to heads of department often before they filter down to the actors. So, you know, there's a particular there's a particular scene later on in season three, isn't there, with Melisandre and the the most bizarre one of the one of the more bizarre sex scenes you'll ever see on television with Gendry, Melisandre, and some leeches. And um, <laughs> I was aware that something was coming because various people in the weeks leading up to that script being released to us would kind of say to me, "Oh, all right, mate, have you got the have you got the latest scripts yet?" With a real mischievous glint in her eye. <laughs> <laughs> I just go no. Uh-huh. Why? And to go, oh, you'll find out. Don't worry. And then, so I knew that I knew to expect sort of something a little bit different when it came to Genji. Because I think up until that point, he'd sort of, uh, he'd sort of felt more like a foil for Arya. You know, he was there by circumstance, and although the audience knew who he was, you know, I mean, it's it's established fairly immediately uh, who Gendry really is. You know, uh, Ned Stark comes in sees him in the forge in season one and realizes who he is. Um, but then there was never that reveal and, and, and it wasn't that information was never revealed to Gendry himself. And so I was just quite excited. I, I didn't know that it was necessary, that that was what we were going to find out at that point, but I was interested to see Gendry strike out on his own a little bit, you know, him being away from Arya and hot pie, you know, it, it meant that for the first time, maybe we were going to start to find out, some more about him and I was going to get to explore a bit more of that as an actor. Um, so yeah, so I, yeah. I had no idea that that's, that that's the information that was coming, but I was, I, I felt like this was the beginning of 
Gendry's story being revealed. And it's it's funny because I was rewatching this scene um with you and Carice or on mm. the on the boat that's going past uh King's Landing. Yeah. And and some of your you know, sort of biggest line reads um in that scene, you know, you're looking up and you say, like, I'm just a bastard and stuff like that. You're looking at what I presume is a green screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A huge like like forty foot high green screen. What are the challenges of of landing something that sort of impactful while dealing with these kind of uh, trappings of of modern uh, special effects television? I mean, I think that's broadly speaking, one of the main things I learned from my experience on Game of Thrones. And it was something I'd never really had to do as an actor before. You know, most of the stuff, most of the other stuff that I've done is... um, is British television, really. And as you can imagine, there's not an awful lot of cause for green screen in the majority of British television. And um, and so, and, and I'd always wondered, like, whether I had the capability, you know, like, you hear actors all the time talking about having to, you know, play a whole movie to a tennis ball on a stick. And you think, oh, that's probably a bit of an right. exaggeration. You must, but, you know, surely the technology is advanced enough that you, you maybe have something a bit more you know a bit more sort of uh inspiring to play with but um but now i mean in reality it was just like a big 40 foot you know massive green and it's not really any different i mean the reality is like it's like it's always slightly funny there's something slightly comedic about it i mean when we shot um beyond the wall in season seven uh there's that sequence right. where we encounter a, a, a an undead polar bear and you know it's right. like it's you know, it's terrifying. You know, you're in the, you can barely see you. And this is like, you know, the setup of the scene is you can barely see two feet in front of you. You're in the middle of a blizzard. And then out of nowhere comes this, you know, huge, dangerous zombie. And, um, and it was a, one of the stunt guys in a luminous green morph suit, um, <laughs> holding with luminous green painted wellies sort of holding up, a bit of green sort of caging to give us some reference to like the bear's height. And it was like that it was like the least intimidating thing I think I'd ever seen in my life. And I was also feeling for this poor dude that, you know, when you train to be a stuntman, I don't think this is how you imagined it was going to pan out. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to wear it for a fortnight because that sequence took so long to shoot. Uh. But, um, but yeah, you just, you just got to use your imagination. It, it sounds like a real cop out and a real obvious thing, but you just got to try and, you know, actually, you know, the more you are immersed in it mentally, the easier that side of things becomes. I didn't have a chance to zip back through um, season seven before talking to you, but I think that Gendry hasn't seen a dragon yet. Is that right? Or we haven't seen him see a dragon? He hasn't. That's one of my favorite special effects shots that people have to do. You know, we saw a bunch in the season eight trailer, you see like Maisie doing the like, I've seen a dragon for the first time face. And it seems like one of the big like special <laughs> effect faces that you have to pull on Game of Thrones. Yeah, everyone, it's sort of like everyone has to do it. Right. <laughs> you gotta, you got <laughs> to not pay attention to what anyone else has done. You know, it's like, right, you're up. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, that, that, I, I mean, Again, things like that, like where do you, where's your frame of reference? You know, there's so much right. <laughs> that you're taught about acting. It's, you know, try and, if you can, like draw on personal experience and stuff. You can't, just, you can barely ever do that in Game of Thrones because it's such a different world. You know, no one, none of us have ever seen a dragon unless Ian Glenn's keeping a big secret. I bet he'd be the one to have seen it. I bet. If anyone's seen one, Ian, he's seen it all, darling. Well, he's- <laughs> 
Um, well, to bring it back down to practical sort of things that you had to learn, I was just talking to Tommy Dunn and he told me that, uh, he mm. taught, he taught you a little bit of smithing, just, just brought you up to the workshop and taught you a little bit of the basics of the hammering. And he said the main thing that he had to teach you was, and teach anyone who's doing it for the first time or doing it on screen is not to be afraid of the sparks that might come flying at you. He's like, he, the hammering he had, it was the sparks that we all have to like learn about. Um, what was that like training, training to do that on screen? I mean, first of all, uh, Tom, Tommy's being very generous. If he says that that was his main concern when it comes to <laughs> me and blacksmithing. I mean, you want to see some of the stuff I attempted to make during those workshop sessions. It was, uh, you know, I wouldn't give it to my worst enemy. We, I mean, it's, 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 I, I, I mean, the thing about, about Game of Thrones that's, that you have to get used to, I guess, if you're not, if you're not okay with this kind of thing as an actor is that, you know, in, yes, you have, you know, you, you, you know, personally, you know, you're so much more concerned with your, character's journey as sort of uh, as, as actory a phrase as that is your character's journey through a particular scene but on Game of Thrones you're, there are so many other elements going on at the same time that it can sometimes you know it's so easy to get distracted because your performance is actually only one of a number of things that the directors have to get right and keep an eye on mm-hmm. so I mean yeah the, 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 and, and of course it's it's always difficult when I was talking to, uh, to a friend about this the other day, how, how common it is to be playing a character who has a, a, a vocation, an, an occupation, and then you've got to do it and look like you've been doing it all your life. All right. And you've had like three hours training. Um, and then you've also got to do a scene and try and not do stupid things with your face at the same time. So um, it, was, it, it was tricky. I mean, it's, it's such a... I, I'm fascinated by the you know, by blacksmiths now because it's such an intrinsically, it feels like such an intrinsically masculine occupation. You know, you're literally whacking steel all day, you know, in a, in a a baking hot forge, but then some of the things that they can make are, are, are so beautiful. You know, you actually have to have a really, you have to have an artistic mind, um, and a, and a quite, a quite delicate touch, as well. So there's so many elements to it. I mean, there is, put it this way, even after playing a blacksmith for, you know, five seasons on Game of Thrones, don't ask me to make you a, a wrought iron bed. No. Or any, don't even <laughs> ask me to make you a key ring, to be honest. <laughs> Did Tommy have any opinions about the fact that Gendry was trying, were you, you were trying to smith shirtless in season two, right? That can't be up to code. That's not how you do it, right? Well, this is it. I mean, they're talking about, they're talking about being afraid of sparks. They're not afraid of those sparks hitting my naked flesh. Right. Um, <laughs> is not a problem unless, you know, as long as it feels, like it's right for the scene. And as long as it doesn't feel gratuitous. And then this scene comes along. And uh, I think it was that season two or season three. Right. I can't quite remember. But I mean, in the script, Dave and Dan justified it by writing in the stage directions. Uh, Gendry forges a sword uh, shirtless under the blazing sun. And um, Belfast doesn't, hasn't ever seen a blazing sun in its entire history. <laughs> Um, and let alone in November. So, you know, we can no. to shoot that scene and there I am with no shirt on, um, in, in right. light drizzle. Um, 
forging a sword. It, well, it didn't really make any sense, but I think the idea behind the scenes to sort of illustrate that I is getting a little bit older now and uh, and is starting to notice things that maybe she wouldn't have noticed before. So um, hit the gym a bit before that and uh, and got the makeup team to work some wonders with Shay. It's amazing what a bit of soot can do. Contouring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just don't be shy. Just, don't um, be shy. Just six pack me up. I'm not. I'm not sure which which is the better Maisie Williams uh, reaction shot is seeing a dragon for the first time, or that, or that her <laughs> taking in Gendry for the first time. Um, but you know, speaking of Arya getting older, I, I know you've talked about how it sort of um, put you off a bit the fact that people were sort of rooting for Arya and Gendry to get together because Maisie was so young in those first two seasons that you mm. shot with her um and you were like this is uh, this doesn't feel right to me you know like she's she's so young I understood the interest in it I just didn't feel comfortable talking about it personally you know it was, it was just sort of it was an awkward position I guess for me to be in because I was a you know 25 year old 24 25 year old actor being asked whether i thought my character should hook up with a a 14 year old actor um well without um without giving anything away uh in season eight you know presumably uh we see gendry uh forging in the in the trailer at winterfell and arias at winterfell presuming that that people are excited about the potentiality of those two characters meeting again Mm. um is that is that something that you feel like more comfortable with now that that Maisie is a is a bit older? Well, I think I, I mean I think first of all, there's so many. I think that's the, the brilliant thing about season eight is that as you you know as you saw towards the end of season seven, like worlds are starting to collide now, and that's you know the, all the right. all the chess pieces are moving into place on the board, and you're going to get so many characters meeting that haven't met before. It's, it's one of the best things about shooting season eight and i think it'll be one of the you know i think one of the things that people are going to find most enjoyable about the season too so so i mean i did the prospect of of aria and gendry reuniting from 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 my point of view would you know like i i would have been most excited about just working with Maisie again i guess because because i'd said you know i think said in numerous interviews over the years that she even when she was younger She's one of the best actors I've ever worked with, really. And um, and was just staggered at how good all those youngsters were, you know, her, Sophie, and uh, and Isaac. And um, and they've just got yeah. better. And it's just been amazing watching them get even better, even more assured um, as the seasons have gone on. So, like, you know, I certainly would have been excited about the prospect of working with Maisie again. Beautifully hypothetically posed. Okay. Um <laughs> I okay, so then you 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 know Gendry goes off with Melisandre, Davos saves him, he gets in the boat. As we know, he rows for a while, <laughs> quite a while. <laughs> There's a couple seasons where you're not on the show. Were you still watching as a fan? Yeah, absolutely. And it was one of the nicest things about it was that you know well, I guess once you've been in the show, there's there's not loads that's great about not being in it um, afterwards, but. <laughs> Right. I, but it was, but it was actually lovely. I think, I think in so many ways, um, you know, I got to, I got to enjoy the show as a fan for the first time. I had no idea what to expect. You know, I purposefully didn't ask any friends of mine who were in the cast what they were shooting or what was happening. So I was just as excited as everybody else. Um, and and also, you know, with the added, you know, added 
element that I didn't have to worry about my own face popping up at any point. Um, <laughs> so I was, so it was, and it was great. And it was also seemed to be, I mean, I hope there's no, there may well be a connection here, but it seems to me that after I left at the end of season three, it really got popular. <laughs> so it was just really nice. Like what, it was just really nice sort of watching year on year that the anticipation and the, the, and the hysteria surrounding the show yeah. growing sort of, or I, I couldn't every year. I didn't think it could get any bigger. And then it, and then it topped it, you know, it was topped the following season. And, um, and what that also meant was that when I got the call to go back in to season seven, I, I knew exactly what I was stepping back into. Whereas in season, there's a lovely naivety to, I think for all of us that were involved in season one, this kind of, you know, tottering off to a new job and being quite excited about it and knowing that it's HBO and there's a great bunch of people, but having no idea that it was going to be this phenomenon. And having had those years out, not only did I know what I, you know, I knew what I'd been missing because I knew what it was like to have three years without the show in my life. To able to go back in uh, as the show, is, as the this story is reaching its climax and also to, you know, for it to have grown so much it was just it was it was it was perfect because it meant that i went in and i savored every every minute you know i think there may have been a, a couple of the others i'm not sure who who had been in it from season one all the way through that might have been quite keen to finally finish and move on and do other things i'd had three years doing other things so i could kind of i could just really savor yeah. it and take it in and appreciate the experience. In the years that you had away from the show, is there one thing that you remember watching uh, just as like a fan, an unspoiled fan that really sort of uh, knocked your, knocked your hat off that really either surprised you or shocked you or disgusted you or whatever it was. It's easy to get desensitized to, to violence. And I was loving the Viper until that scene. Yeah. Oh, you know, so and I was like, I just, I was like, this guy is, this guy is the bomb. And then, and then he was gone. Um, but then the, the scene that we're talking about, like the normalization of, uh, of death and violence, Shereen Baratheon's death, just for some reason, I, I think it was just so, I don't know if it was the way they shot it or just the, the story of it. Um, it just really got to me that and yeah. stayed with me for quite a while afterwards. And I've never watched it again. I've only ever sort of saw it when it was when it was transmitted, and never, I never rewatched yeah, that it's one. It's really hard. And I, I, what's both hard and hilarious about it is that Carrie Ingram, who who filmed it, just thinks it's the funniest thing in the whole world. And you're just like, oh my god, it's so so upsetting, and she thinks yeah. it's hilarious. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, showed it to her little sister or something. <laughs> Watch this. It's <laughs> just again burglarized. Strange family. <laughs> character wise you know you mentioned like going off in season three going off the melisandre felt like the beginning of of gendry's story for you so character wise you know mm. knowing that there's so much happening in the final season what did you want to come through for gendry as a character to complete his arc uh in the final season it's uh, with season eight his whole journey has been has been a constant eye opener, you know, from someone who's lived, a, who had lived a very sheltered and kind of nondescript existence, but for whatever reason felt like he was uh, sort of innately craved something more, felt like he was destined to be part of something bigger. 
he's been his horizons have just been widened to the nth degree. And so by the end of season seven, I think he's he's seen what's on the other side of that wall. Like he's seen what's coming. And so I was interested to see, you know, who, and I think for everyone in season eight, you know, the, the coming battle is, it's what makes or break. It, it, it shows your true soul, I guess your core, how you, how you approach that, how you deal with that, how you, do you fight or do you run away? But, um, but yeah, I guess then sort of further further to that, just sort of like finding out what's really at the core of Gendry. Also, I was interested to find out if any of the other questions are answered about where he came from um, and what implications that might have politically right. yeah. for him and his place within, you know, this, you know, this sort of power struggle. Very, very interesting question. And then... Um, you you mentioned that, you know, maybe some people in the cast who've been at it for years and years and years were ready to move on. But what was it like for you fin- filming your final moments um, on the show? Yeah, it was, it was, it was strange because it felt like you, you were well aware that it was coming, you know, like even from the day that we had uh, the read through for season eight where you know, we had over two days, we all got together in Belfast and we sat around a big table and read the season from start to finish. And at the end, when we finished reading the final episode, um, it was a really weird atmosphere. It was kind of subdued. And I remember, I remember John Bradley saying, it's really weird. It feels like the end of school, but it's the start of school. Like we've still got to go and film it now. Like we've not even begun this, you know, this mammoth filming process. And so, so yeah, we you know you had a lot of time to mentally prepare for that eventuality, but I don't think anyone really knew how they were going to react until it happened. And um, and I happened to be finishing on the same day as a couple of others. And when we finished, I'm sure some of the others have told you this. Like when we finished and when you wrapped your final scene, David and Dan came out, gave a little speech, and we all got presented with this really nice sort of framed storyboard piece of storyboard from one of our scenes it could have been from like any scene over the past eight seasons and um and i was and they did my thing and i was and i was fine and i got up and thanked them for an amazing experience and you know looked at my storyboard and sat back down and then they moved on to someone else and i looked across and i saw this other actor's lips start to quiver and it was at that point that I realized I'm fine until I see someone else trying not to cry, at which point oh. I'm a mess. It's it's funny you mentioned that because I, I actually talked to all of the actors who play the Avengers, uh, you know, for Marvel recently, and they said a similar thing. You know, they've been together for so long. Yeah. They're contemplating the end of that. And, uh, you know, like people have been married, people have been divorced, there have been babies, like all this sort of stuff, and you won't have this coming together anymore. Yeah. It's amazing that these two things are coinciding the event, the end of this Avengers movie series, which has been our biggest movie thing, and the event, the end of Game of Thrones all at once. Yeah. It's crazy. It's the end of entertainment as we know it. <laughs> this is what it. are we going to do? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, can you, can you share what your storyboard was that Dan and David gave you? Oh, it was the leech scene, obviously. Oh, obviously. <laughs> of course. Of course it was. Um, the one for my mother, I think. 
<laughs> and then um last question did you take anything else with you when you left the show other than your storyboard do you know what i did you know what? i didn't i think it was I mean, especially all of the really cool shit, like that's on the lock and key. Like that's right. going to go into, you know, they're like touring exhibition, you know, travels around the world. And that's where like all of the good stuff's going to be. I mean, like in my mind, I was like, I really want that bull's head helmet that Gendry was forging. Ooh, yeah. That would be really cool. But that was nowhere to be found. Um, in terms of my costume, I probably never want to see that again. <laughs> um, and, um, and then yeah, and then in terms of the rest, like I, yeah, I, I just I never had that that urge to 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 thieve anything. Like I'm not out of any great like nobility. I was in it. Like, that's my memento. Yeah, you'll always have that leech scene to uh, hold with There'll you. Always be the leeches. I should have taken one of them actually. <laughs> Kept it as a pet. All right, that does it for this episode of Still Watching Game of Thrones. Richard, where can people find you? Until we meet again, uh, running around a damp castle like I've like I've lost a contact looking for Theon's uh... <laughs> favorite toy. <laughs> yeah. Um, all yeah. right. I'll also well, be on Twitter at Rylos. All right. <laughs> I'll be on Twitter at Joe wrote this. You can find me getting ready for um, a wedding. I don't know if you heard, but Ed Martoli is getting married to one of the Frey girls. So. Oh, that'll be a festification. Yeah. So that'll be, be nice. I'll be getting ready and we'll be back to talk about it next time when we talk about season three, episode nine, The Reigns of Castamere. It's the one happy episode. It's just like a nice wedding episode. <laughs> the gang gets married.